Awesome. Open up your Bibles, Philippians 3, verse 1, reading from the ESV. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so we'll stop there. So this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi and he's putting out a warning uh, to, the, to the people there. And he's saying, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. So very pastoral heart there. Paul, um, but uh, no, he's, he's speaking it as it is. Uh, and he says, For we are the circumcision, and who is the circumcision? Those who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So you might be wondering, Paul's talking about circumcision. Okay? So what does circumcision have to do with the context of what Paul is talking about? And what is this whole idea of circumcision in the Jewish kind of tradition in the Hebrew church. Well, it comes from the, the first initial one, Genesis 17, uh, verse 9. But just before this, this is where um, Abraham has received the promise. His name has been changed from Abram to Abraham. And he said, you'll be a you know, father to many nations. And so all of these promises given to him uh, for, for the church at the time. So God also said to Abraham, verse 9, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant, so my promise. This is my covenant which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you at eight days old is to be circumcised. This includes a slave born in your house and one purchased with money from any foreigner. The one who is not your offspring, a slave covenant will be marked in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Oh, sorry, uh, I missed a line. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right. For all the males in the room, who's glad we're not under the law? Hallelujah. Yep, Okay. Thank you, Jesus. So this was something, I mean, at any age, if, if, if you were to become a convert uh, to Judaism, you would have to go through the circumcision process, uh, which is, you know, full on. But essentially, it was a, it was a physical mark to, to the body, okay, uh, that represented and, and really displayed, I am part of the promises of God. I'm part, I, become, I enter into the covenant, and there's a physical mark of it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faith reality. It's, it's stepping into the promises of God. So God gives promises to the Jewish people, and this act of physical act is, uh, is, invites you into that covenant. And so in the new covenant then, we don't carry on with this same reality, but there's a heart circumcision. Romans 2.28 says, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit and not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. 
So Paul understands then as he's talking to people, so there's these people coming into the church and they're saying you must be circumcised or you want to become a Christian, you must go through this practice, okay? Understanding that the church for, for several years, the Christian church only reached out to Jews. Yeah, we know that. So for many years, it was the Jews thought Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews, so they only reached out to the Jews. It wasn't until, uh, I think Peter is preaching then, and he, you know, he has a prophetic dream and different things happen, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jewish people. But this is years after the ascension of Christ. The, on the Gentiles, sorry. Yep. So the Holy Spirit gets poured out on the Gentiles, and they're like, what is going on here? We thought Jesus was just for the Jewish people, and so shifts their theology, and you can... Read more about that. Paul talks more in, uh, in Ephesians 3 and, and Galatians uh, about that sort of stuff. So a person is one who is, has a heart circumcision. So Paul is just pointing out to them, stay away from those who would, who would bring about an outward conformity in the flesh and not seek to have a heart conformity. Okay? And so if we were to translate that into probably more of today's context where within the church, you know, the Christian church has been going on for so many years, it's not predominantly Jewish people that, have, that believe in the Messiah, it's predominantly Gentiles, so non-Jewish people who are followers of Christ. So we probably don't kind of get a lot of this sort of stuff, but we get a whole lot of other religious junk and this and these expectation of conformity in order to look like a Christian. You've got to do all of these different sorts of things in order to look like a Christian. This is that kind of religious mentality that people can fall into. And so Paul is just pointing out, look, if you are truly in the covenant with Christ, it's a heart work that's going on. That God has marked your heart. He's not marking your external behavior. He's marking your heart. Now, a true heart that has been yielded to God will produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It will, it will produce good works in the believer, but it's coming from an internal reality. Verse 4 then, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is saying to the people, to the church, he's saying, you know what, if anyone wants to boast about the flesh, about being a good kind of follower, I'm, I'm top dog. In all of this, okay? You don't get, you know, if we were, again, in a Christian context, it was like, man, I'm, I get there before the pastor every Sunday morning and I clean and I'm the last to leave and I read my Bible for, for 15 hours every day and then I pray on top of that another 28 hours a day and, um, you know, I'm, I'm evangelizing and I'm loving people and I'm serving the poor and I'm ticking off all of these good Christian boxes, okay? So Paul's saying, you know what, when it comes to all that sort of stuff, I was, I was top dog. He was a good man. And Paul's talking from within that kind of Jewish context. So all of those things, Paul's not saying, you know, and they don't matter. He's saying, no, no, I was, I, I'm, I was really good at doing those things. And there's nothing wrong with all of those things that he was doing. He's saying, no, these, these are good things. 
He was blameless when it came to fulfilling the law. And this wasn't a bad thing. But for Paul, it was as if it was worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. There was a comparison between all of these outward actions that set himself up as a good Jew, or maybe in our today's context, they're they're good things. If you're out serving the poor and praying and reading your Bible, they're all really good things. They're godly things. But in comparison to knowing Christ, there was just no comparison. All, uh, so for Paul, it was worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. All the righteousness of his pure behavior paled in comparison to the righteousness of Christ. So it is good for us to pursue the manifestation of righteousness in our lives. And we're not free from living in purity and pursuing holiness because of the finished work of the cross. So again, it's this thing of saying, well, no, there's, there's this expectation. Yeah, we should be walking in holiness. Jesus says, be holy as I am holy. Okay? But all of these outward manifestations don't produce righteousness in our life. As righteous as they might be as acts, we need to understand that we are to be in the righteousness of Christ. You know, grace doesn't free us from pursuing righteousness, holiness, and purity. Grace is not a covering for sin. It's the empowerment for righteousness. So again, we don't say, oh, well, I'm under the grace. Well, we're not under the law, and, and so we're kind of free to do whatever we want. No, we're not at all. There is an absolute expectation from Christ for you to be pursuing perfection, holiness, purity, righteousness in your life, and that's in your external behavior. Okay? But it must be an overflow of an internal reality. It must be an overflow of an internal reality. And to know that the finished work of Christ positions you before God in righteousness. This is a a doctrine of imputed righteousness, where Jesus takes our sin from us, our sinfulness, and he imputes to us his righteousness. The great exchange that happens between us and God at that point of being born again is that all of our sin is taken from us and all of his righteousness is put in us. The fullness of his bank account of righteousness is transferred into ours. So we can stand before God in absolute confidence that we are right before him. So there is a standing before God of righteousness that we all have if you're a born-again believer. But that outworking and that manifestation of righteousness, there must be a connection between your heart becoming whole and your behavior becoming whole. People who walk in an outward manifestation of purity and wholeness that doesn't come from an inward manifestation of holiness. So you must be, we must be walking in an outward manifestation of holiness that comes from an inward manifestation. The two must be connected. And this is what religion does. It tries to get people to conform externally, but it fails to bring conformity internally. It tries to get us to behave right, but it's not so concerned about our hearts being right. So this is kind of a bit of a follow-on from two weeks ago about this attention to the heart. Is that That's where the manifestation must come, an internal reality that then naturally flows to an outward reality. Paul says in the Scriptures, you know, work out your salvation with fearing trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out, inward to outward. Work out your salvation. Work it out of you. So Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23, verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, 
but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying there's no good having this external like, I'm just such a good person. If that internal reality, if it's not the same in there, it must start here and then come out here. And the church, unfortunately, um, sometimes it's easier to do an outward conformity than it is an inward one. Sometimes it's easier to change our behavior than it is to change our heart. It's far less painful. Sometimes it's, it's easier just to, you know, put on a, a smile on your face and, and be nice to people and then inwardly kind of be like, oh, I want to punch you in the face, <laughs> you know. And if, if, and if we continue in that pattern for too long, it gets to this point where we just end up shutting down our heart and we don't ever pay attention to it. So we, so we never come into fullness and freedom. Freedom is a heart reality. It's not a circumstantial reality. You know, we can pray for God. Oh, just bless us, God. And if, if only I had this and, and if God sorted out my circumstance, if only I, I had a better job or if only I wasn't in relationship with this person or if only this wasn't happening, God, change my circumstance and then I'll be happier. But God's not interested in changing your circumstance as much as he is interested in changing your heart. That's what he cares about. Because God knows that If your heart changes, then your circumstance all of a sudden becomes less significant to you. Paul writes in Philippians, he is writing from prison. And he's writing from prison back then. You know, so he didn't have Xbox and, you know, three square meals a day. He was in a dungeon, probably underground in the sewer system. You know, literally, you know, sewage floating past his his cell. Disgusting. You wouldn't have been eating. You would have probably had to eat rats and different things like that. Chained up in shackles. A disgusting place to be. And Paul, when you read even just the book of Philippians, the letter that he wrote, he's talking about joy and suffering. He's talking about all of these things. And it's like, that does not match his circumstance. But it matches his internal reality. Paul talks about how, you know, he's, he's... learn to be content whether in abundance or in lack it doesn't matter it doesn't shift his internal reality now look we can no matter how um right your internal reality is there's still pain there's still suffering in life there's still hardship you know people die and things happen in that we are still in a broken world but we don't get rocked and and shifted and changed by our circumstance in the same way because we're concerned about the cleanness of the inside of the cup not the outside you know not polishing the outside but actually dealing with the hard issue so when we discover that our righteousness is in christ and we are in him and he is in us then we must learn what it is to bring out that righteousness from within So doing that process. So when we are confronted with a situation, whether it's our our sin or or a reaction to somebody else, we've got to name it and then we've got to do the heart journey. And again, we've got to stop blaming other people for our sin. We've got to stop blaming other people for making us angry. We've got to stop blaming other people for offending us. We've got to stop blaming other people and take responsibility for our hearts. 
I had a long conversation with someone on, on Friday, but it's literally in that situation, as I've said before, I could say something and one person could, it would not bother them and the other person would get hugely offended. Okay? And that's because that stuff resides in here. It's not in the other person. But as we start to take responsibility, we start to go, God, what is going on in my heart? When we struggle with something, if you're eating too much, that's a heart issue. If you're, if you're you know, finding comfort in, in eating, if you're finding comfort in shopping, if you're finding comfort in anything, it's a heart issue. And fasting won't solve it. Fasting will just expose it. So you can deal with the heart issue. Spiritual disciplines won't solve the problem. Reading your Bible more, praying more, praying in tongues more, getting in the spirit more, you know, listening to more sermons on your, on your iPhone. All the, none of those things will solve the problem because the problem is your heart. It will expose it and it might give you revelation and wisdom and insight and grace from the Lord to, to do that journey. But ultimately, you're going to have to deal with your heart. There's no escaping it. As I said the other week, you know, if we try and run away from our problems, it'll, they follow us because the problem is our heart. <laughs> and unless we rip out our heart, then we're not going to avoid that sort of stuff. All right. So the church can sometimes teach sin management rather than sin freedom. So they teach an outward conformity to religious expectations. And as right as some of these expectations might be so so that it might be well we probably shouldn't be violent well like we're supposed to be like jesus so if we look at jesus and we say there's there's something in jesus that is not in me it belongs in you okay because it's it's that's who we're becoming if we see something that's not in jesus and that is in me it doesn't belong in me because i'm supposed to be like jesus okay so there's lots of things they're good things okay to be good godly holy respectful righteous people so as right as some of these expectations might be, if they're not coming from a place of internal freedom and desire for more of Christ in and through us and a deepening intimacy with Father God, they won't produce healthy and lasting fruit in our lives. Our behavior changes, but our heart stays the same. And because God is more interested in your heart than your behavior, the Lord finds no pleasure in religious exercises. If you read the Bible 10 hours a day, and it doesn't sink in here and bring about change. Like, what's the point? But often we do. We think, no, it's about, about how much I do something and how often I do stuff and how much, you know, am I sharing the gospel with 10 people today and am I doing all this sort of stuff? And it's like, that's, that's a good thing to do. But is it coming from an overflow of the heart and is it bringing about change? You know, I've said this before. Jesus said, if you hear my words and you obey them, you're like a wise builder who builds his house on the rock. Okay? If you hear my words and you don't do them, you're like a foolish builder who builds his house in the sand. So for me, even when it comes to reading the Bible, if you're not coming into that with an expectation that my heart is going to be exposed, God is going to bring about change or he's going to bring about direction for me, he's going to, something's going to shift in my reading of the Scriptures, potentially you're going to walk away more foolish than when you came to the Scriptures. Because you're hearing and you're not obeying. Neil Cole says, he's an author of a few books, one called Organic Church, but he says the church in the current age is educated beyond its obedience. That we know all the stuff and we do very little of it. And I want to tell you right now, if you've been a Christian for maybe at least a couple of years, you know enough. 
but you're probably not doing enough. And that's not a pressure to do more. <laughs> that's a pressure to search your heart and find out, God, why am, why am I not walking in this stuff? Why do I live every day confronting these same things and just not dealing with them and asking you to change something? And God's like, I'm trying to change your heart, but you're not letting me. God, you know, help me to stop doing this or change this or change that. And God's like, well, you've got to let him in. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So where sin manifests in our life, it manifests from our heart. And now I think again today, there's probably a lot of things that we don't call sin, which is sin. And, we're, and we get afraid of, of naming stuff. We shouldn't be afraid of sin. We should confront it head on and go, Lord, what is going on? If we let guilt and shame come in and cover us and cause us to disconnect from God, in that moment, if you're struggling with something, in that moment, ask the Lord to search your heart. Because that's probably the, the time when you are most aware of what is going on. If you are angry and you're like flying off the handle, that's the moment where God's like, maybe it's the Lord provoking you to stir you up so that you'll actually have a look inside. Just a thought. Proverbs 20 verse 9, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Heart pure, clean from sin. Again, it all, it's all flowing from an internal reality. So the first question we must ask is not how do I stop sinning, but why am I sinning in the first place? Psalm 139, 23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. He's saying, God, Enter into my internal reality. Let me be aware of you being in my internal reality. Because that's where the change is going to happen. All right, Philippians 3 verse 7. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So that is dung, refuse, refuse, a big steaming pile of you know what. That's what the word means. Uh, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, so that comes from external conformity, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the powers of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All of Paul's good works, all of his positive character traits, his religious accomplishments were like a big pile of dog poo in comparison to knowing Christ and receiving his righteousness. That's literally what he's saying. So it... In their own context, they're all good things. And all of us as, as followers of Jesus, all the good things that we do, they're good. They're really good. But in comparison, they're not good. They're like worthless. So it's then not to say, oh, well, so I won't do any good. No, it's absolutely do those things. Let them be an overflow. 
You know, what is our motivation for righteousness, for right living, for being good Christians? Is it guilt alleviation? Is it self-righteousness? Is it a fear of punishment or a fear of shame and exposure? I've heard sermons preached where it's almost like you, you better not do this. You shouldn't be proud because somebody might find out and you'll be exposed. And all this stuff is like, oh, I don't want to be exposed. I better be humble then because someone might find out that I'm proud and then I'd be, I'd be you know, ashamed and all that sort of stuff. I was like, that's a dumb, this is a stupid motivation for change. But it gets, often gets preached like things like that, teachings and it's like, and people get guilted in. Because I, I want you to know that as a pastor, when you do dumb stuff, it affects me. <laughs> and not necessarily there's deep spirits, but it's like you've got to deal with it, you know, when people, so you want people to be walking in righteousness. Okay, you want people to be making healthy, wise lifestyle choices. Okay, and not flying off a handle and doing crazy stuff. You want that, okay? But for me, I'm like, I love when people come in their brokenness and just pour out all the junk and we can sift through it together because at least that's true. That's the heart. That's the, that's the realness, okay? So what we never want to have is some place where there's some expectation for external conformity to right living and behavior. Okay, if you can't come into the church and be completely raw with all of your sin and all of your brokenness, then there's something wrong with the church. Jesus says, I came for sinners. You know, people who go to the doctors because they're sick. You know, when you come into the community of the church, this is the place where where the reality of our sin should manifest most. I don't mean in the hour of it, but where we can just be raw before one another and not be ashamed of it, not be scared of it, because God's certainly not. You can be a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, and then God starts exposing something in your life that has been there all of that time. He knew it. You didn't know it. Maybe some other people knew it. But there's a time where the Lord just ripens you, and then all of a sudden it gets exposed and gets dealt with. So God's not worried about all of the brokenness in your life in terms of like it doesn't scare him, doesn't worry him, okay? It, it, he cares about it because he wants you to come into wholeness and freedom. Okay? But the, God's not going to expose every part of your brokenness. It would be overwhelming. It would crush us. So that's why he died on the cross and he rose again. He did the great exchange. And now he's like, but you're still broken and still wounded. And there's still then the healing and the outworking of that to come out of you. But the Lord is patient and kind. So it's so important that even our pursuit of righteousness is coming from a right heart. Then we're not doing it out of fear. Well, God's not going to like me or he's going to punish me or something's going to happen like that because that's nonsense. Paul knew that his righteousness was found in Christ alone and not in his good works. And that didn't mean that he didn't pursue walking in holiness and passion and purity for God. He just did it from the right foundation. And I believe that as a church, we need to move from a right versus wrong mentality to a what benefits my intimacy with Father God mentality. Shifting from a right versus wrong mentality, or that's right, so I should do that, and that's wrong, so I can't do that, and all this sort of stuff, to a what actually benefits my intimacy with Father God. Because you know what? We can... um, So I will pick on smoking as, as an example of something. Now, if you search through the Bible you're going to find nothing in there that says, thou shalt not smoke cigarettes. 
okay? You're not going to find it. So therefore, really, it's hard for us to say that's sinful, wouldn't it, from, from that kind of right versus wrong mentality, okay? But if you're addicted to anything, okay, in your life, whether it's smoking or food or shopping or whatever it is, if you're addicted to anything, it means that's a false refuge in your life. That's a place where you run to for comfort, for security, for whatever it might be. Okay? So even though you might not find it in the Bible, if you were asked, God, search my heart, and, and God will go, that place right there that you run to, that's supposed to be me. And when you run to that place, you're disconnecting from an opportunity for intimacy, and you're running away to that place. But I am, I am your refuge. God is my refuge. God is the only truly safe place. So again, when we're running into that place, and we need to, it's not a right versus wrong, because we could justify it. I mean, say, well, it doesn't say anything in the Bible about it. It doesn't say that I'm not allowed to look at, you know, pictures of naked people on the internet in the Bible, does it? Specifically. doesn't mention the internet. doesn't mention Facebook. Spending too much time on Facebook or Gumtree. <laughs> no, just joking. <clears throat> But it doesn't mention those things. I know uh, a, a, a guy he used to talk about when teaching on you know, sexual immorality, and he reckons that it's like, that's like the junk drawer of sexual impurity. Because if, we'd, if, if Paul had named everything, then someone would find something that wasn't on the list and then go and do that. You know? But it's the thing, it's, not a, it's shifting again from this you know, letter of the law, this right versus wrong, to a, to a heart reality. And say, where, where is my heart in this process? What is going on here? And why am I running to this thing? Because when I do that, it's affecting my intimacy. And that's a problem. A right versus wrong mentality will cause us to justify our bad behavior, avoid our wounded heart, and miss the whole point of manifest righteousness. Sin breaks intimacy with God. It doesn't change who we are or where we stand with God, but it draws our attention and our affection away from Him and, and onto ourselves. We become lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Our attention gets shifted to run, from the, to run to the refuge of God and we run to whatever refuge that we find fit that will give us the most immediate satisfaction to that wound in our heart. But it's not an answer. It's just momentary satisfaction. We become lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Verse 12 of Philippians 3. He says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You belong to God. It's a good thing. It says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You have attained the righteousness of Christ. You have attained that right standing before God. Okay, so there's no fear to come before him with all of the junk, with all of your wounding, with all of your brokenness. And to know there's far more that God sees that we don't even see. 
But if we're not going through that process, letting him search our heart, letting him reveal and expose, letting other people speak into those areas. Every outward working of sin comes from an inward brokenness. Okay? Sin starts in our heart, okay, before it works out. So we need to allow the Lord to come into that place. Paul didn't want the fruit of what Jesus accomplished. He wanted to become the tree. He didn't just want like, oh, well, I don't want to walk in righteousness so I don't feel guilty anymore. Or so people don't think badly of me or anything. Paul wasn't after the fruit of what Jesus had accomplished. He was after Christ himself. I'm not after the fruit. I'm after Jesus. And this is what he gets. He's saying all of the things that Paul did in his life, all of his religious accomplishments, which were good things, he's like, but it just means nothing. All of the fruit of God is nothing in comparison to knowing Christ, to having him myself. That's what, that's what we're after. We're after God himself, the greater reality of him being in us. Paul wasn't after Jesus to give him a good life or a bunch of good stuff or a nice family or more money. He wanted Jesus. And that's the pursuit of our life. It's more of God. And it becomes, it creates then more of a manifest reality so that we are as a people walking in greater measures of outward manifestation of holiness and purity and righteousness that we're not offended people, that we're not backstabbing, that we're not gossips, that we're not, you know, foul mouth, that we're not, you know, stuck in sin and all of this sort of stuff. So yes, but it has to come from an inward transformation of the heart and inviting God in and inviting other people to speak the heart of God into your life. So we don't bring condemnation, but we bring the grace of God into people's lives, which is the empowerment for walking in righteousness. So if you think, oh, well, I don't need to deal with that because the grace of God covers me. No, it doesn't. If the grace of God was on your life, you wouldn't be walking in that in the first place. Sin, grace doesn't cover sin. Grace empowers righteousness. His mercy, his blood, the finished work of the cross, that covers you in your season of brokenness. But when the grace comes, all of a sudden you're walking in righteousness like you never have before. And you're able to overcome and healing comes and transformation comes when the grace comes. Yeah? All right. That's it. We're over time. Let me pray. <clears throat> thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We just thank you, Lord, that you are such a good, good Father. You are such a good Father, Lord. And Lord, your arms are always wide open. You are never shaking your head in disgust at us, Lord. But we thank you, Father, that you see our brokenness, Lord, and you love us in spite of it, Father. You see our sin, Lord, and you love us in spite of all of those things, Father. And that you have made a way, Jesus. You have made a way through your flesh, Lord, for that tearing of the curtain, Father, the tearing of your flesh, the spilling of your blood for us to come into right relationship with you, God. And that does not change. We didn't earn it. So we cannot lose it. It is yours, a gift that you've given to us, Lord. But Father, we want to see that outworking of your righteousness, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that even if we have no idea how to do that heart journey, Lord, that you would show us, Father. You would just release a grace for us to know what it is to come before you and say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, Lord, all my thoughts. Show any wicked way within me, Lord. 
And Father, we can be a people that just live open, Father, like that. That we just live open, Lord. And even, Father, if someone was to bring a, a, word, from, a, a word of accusation or a word of, of anything, Lord, that if it stirred anything in our heart, we'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm open to do that journey with God. And Father, when we're, if we're striving in an area, Lord, where we're seeing an outworking of sin, that we'd be willing to go in that moment and say, Father, search my heart. What is in my heart, Lord, that's making me want to do this, Father? Why do I run to this thing, Lord, rather than running to you? And Lord, that you would bring revelation in those times, Father. You'd bring understanding and openness, Father, and a grace for us to choose to repent, Lord, to step into that new understanding, to step into walking in that new way, Lord. And Father, I just pray against any religious spirit, Father, that even maybe if any of us, Lord, have walked under a religious spirit, Father, from what has been taught by the church, Lord, unintentionally, Father, to bring about that religious weight and heaviness, Father. I just speak against that religious spirit in Jesus' name, and I command it to go. I command it, you loosen your grip of people's lives right now in Jesus' name. And Father, spirit of grace come upon people, Lord. Spirit of righteousness come. Spirit of freedom come. That that law of sin and death has been broken on the cross. But the law of the spirit of life would be released right now in Jesus' name. And would come upon you and rest upon you. And you would know its covering. You would know its power. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.